0: Hey, everybody. Welcome to another of the panels that we recorded at Necronomicon this year. It's called The Mythos, Lovecraft's Greatest Creation or Suffocating Trope. For many, the Cthulhu Mythos is their first exposure to Lovecraft and his greatest literary creation. But today, is it still as effective or has it become stale and cliche after being used by so many writers? Is Cthulhu still frightening or just about as scary as a plush toy? Find out right after the intro music. Hey everybody, this is John. And this is Vince. And you're listening to Legends of Tabletop. Creating Legends One Die at a Time.
1: This is the turning of all the rounds. So I would like to welcome you and bid you a wonderful afternoon. Welcome to the Mythos, Lovecraft's greatest convention or suffocating trope. My name is Cody Goodfellow. I will be uh, asking the uh, questions and uh, I will let these folks who will be hollering aloud funny words introduce themselves in their own inimitable fashion. The on my left. Uh, Pete Mullen, author of
0: React and Rear Company, Brain Matrix, and
2: the DC. I'm Daryl Schweitzer. I have one book of mythos fiction which is called Awaiting Strange Gods. My, my contract is involved in short fiction. I haven't written any that has novels. I am also the editor of Discovering H.P. Lovecraft, which is a sort of standard text. And the really standard devotional text the Innsmouth Tabernacle Choir hymnal, which you will, you, we will be singing from in this room tomorrow. Um, and I also used to be editor of Weird Tales, so I um, have something to do with this.
3: Uh, Douglas Wynn, I'm the author of the Spectrophiles trilogy, which includes Red Equinox, Black January, and coming next month, uh, Cthulhu Blues.
2: Cthulhu what? Cthulhu Blues. Cthulhu they're, all, Blues. they're all colors. Oh, I've okay. got kind of Thanks. All right, so given that
1: we're all uh, in, already uh a uh, uh Mythos Multis friend and bring up the usual obligatory question of how he came to the Mythos. I would love to ask the, the, the question when you came up against the limits of Mementos, uh, if you have, uh, I will, whether or not you go so far as to use the, the terms suffocating, trope, so, but uh, where did you guys first see the, first see the bear of limitations, uh, if any, oh, you want to throw me of the Oh, yeah, from Mementos? Okay. Um, okay actually, so uh, I've
0: got my black book, the okay. stories, and You know, it's full, so I don't have a limit here. My limit is actually when other people lead me to what I want to write about. Mm -hmm. Um, Because there's only so many hours in the day. I have deadlines. I have to. I have to write these stories. I want to write these stories. Those stories get left behind. Um, There are there are some problems I do have. I think there's way too many monsters. I think there's way too many dogs. And there's way too many books. You know, everybody and their brother has created the book. Um, let's use the one we have. I'd rather explore that. I find that you when know, Wisconsin University must be holding at the scenes. There's just too many books. And if you try and collate like that stuff like I do in my fiction, it becomes it does become suffocating. You have to finally choose something so it's going to be that. And from my point of view, that is probably the top I have there's from a sort of post-Cethulu mythos time period, is too much, and I cannot keep up with integrating everything that that's coming
1: out That's an excellent point. You're uh, coming to that as a, as a week before I was really publishing uh, a lot of your fiction who so run the end of Lovecraft and I there, there must be more and then that was I mean, when I was growing up that was right around the time of the women's fiction line curated by Bob Price. and Bob was serving these things up sometimes with a caveat well yeah the, the, it, looking at it as a book of gospel yeah. there are some of the apocryphal things there's some redundancies and things but there were so many sequels to Lovecraft stories you know what happened in Dunwich Horror right after uh Hermitage uh put paid to the uh, to the Whaley's, or, you know, what happened immediately after uh, the Call of the Pillow or the continuation of what was happening in Honor of the Dark. And that was where it started to feel suffocating to me, because where it becomes— where these same characters, these same locations get used over and over again. Uh, and, and when every author that came afterwards felt it was obligatory, my, my contribution to those needs to be a new forbidden book, uh a new foul uh, challenge deity, and, and a new servitor race. And there was a ton of redundancy. Is that Val or Val? All of the above. Yes. So Unnamable. Uh, you don't really want to know. Right. And so uh, I feel like one of the things that has kind of clean house in, in the middle of us, or one of the ways that each you, other kind of does uh, uh, clear out their own space, is because uh, so many of us, especially now, are still in a dialogue of lovecraft's work. Uh, not necessarily with everything that's come since because I feel like, like, August Gerlach kind of came in there and had his mysterious clock and was, I'm going to map out this mysterious mysterious clock by filling it with concrete. And so it becomes a very solid thing where you can see all of it, but it no longer moves, it no longer does anything really, really extraordinary. So I think a lot of the authors that came since then, like, after the second wave of the 70s and 80s, have gone back to just looking at Lovecraft the stuff that Lovecraft initially didn't realize. There was such vast tracks of country conceptually that, that haven't been explored within those core tropes, that the worst thing I could do would be to throw on another god, another forbidden book, another thing you know, because it just trivializes and pushes down
2: what's come before. Well, you no, know, no, he said everything we needed to say on the whole panel. Well, I will admit that the only time I ever created a forbidden book, I almost did it frivolously. I just sort of did it as a throwaway, but then I, but I, I did. so I did do one. I haven't invented any gods, I have no intention to. Um, you know, when I was actually editing Weird Tales, we actually had difficulty getting decent mythos stories. They were actually pretty rare. And one of the uh, reasons w- was that um, that uh, the, the derelict approach. And basically what, what is boring and limiting about the mythos is when the ca- two characters get together and they seem to have read every previous mythos story and then they start babbling out these long, in almost every derelict story they start babbling on pages of catalog and lore, that's, no. Um, the standard for any, uh, my feeling is, it's the standard for any publishable mythos story, including the ones I would buy one of my anthologies. Is it has to work as a story for somebody who's never heard of Lovecraft. If if it's moving as a story, uh, and basically what you frequently can do, and, and also this is a commercial thing for your writers because there, there are many editors out there who don't want mythos, and so you've got to sneak it up on them. And uh, as long, you know, at one point I remember I. Um, uh, basically the editor, did, you know, at, at, he actually wanted to make it more mythos because the, the story was being reprinted from the editor's and it would be published in, in Lovecraft's magazine, you know, horror. And I said, well, you realize you're quoting the economic out of the end here. You know, I, had to, I, I was quoting about saying something. And basically, if you can get most of your mythos, Lord, to sort of just come just about to the surface, but not quite break the surface, so that the people who are on the inside know what this is, and the people who are not on the inside don't care it still works as a, it's got to work as a story first it has to appeal to emotions first the rest is it, uh... and one, one thing readers really don't like is the feeling that it was an in-joke and they didn't get it so uh... you cannot write you cannot write for an audience entirely existing people who have memorized Trailer Profilio and uh, *Work Up the Threshold and so on I never finished *Work at the Threshold myself uh, I came to it too late, you know, it's something you should read when you're 15. Um, and, uh, anyway, so basically my uh, approach has always been to, to basically sort of turn the explicit mythos element down. So it's there, but it's not screaming at you. It's not so to it it's, Yeah, it's basically in a whisper. It's, it's, un- it's under the text. And you can actually, you, you can write, a, you can write an honest about mythos story, or an honest authentic mythos story, without mentioning any of the gods, or any of the forbidden books, or Arkham. It's just, you just sort of write like everybody knows that, and just assume it.
1: There was, a, there was an excellent uh, online magazine that once in their uh, uh, in, in their uh, standards declared that yes, we're not adverse to mythos stories, but it has to fit this, it has to fit this, uh, this criteria. If you can swap out the mythos antagonists and, and put in something else, and swap out Meryl tab and put in the devil, it still holds up as a story, that is not a proper mythos story, and don't want to see it. It needs to be that the unique thing, which is a challenge, that it's that, the next oh. best thing that don't send us mythos stories, because that's the kind of thing that will send you a tailspin, uh, trying to ask yourself that. Yeah, I've, I've
3: tried to work in cosmic horror and all that, but much of, of what Daryl is is saying about within the novels having having the the mythos work for people who are not acquainted with the mythos. And and yet I've had people say, Well, you could have why did you have to use the Lovecraft mythos at all? Why did you have to, you know, tie this into some other writer's work? You could have just named some of these gods other things. Bring, bring
2: on Narlafate and not mention uh, his name.
3: And, and it would function, but but the attraction, a large part of the attraction to me, was to write Lovecraft in a way that, that does have a dialogue with Lovecraft's own work, that does address themes in his work, that does function within the philosophical paradigm that we get from Lovecraft. So in referencing the mythology, you know, we're referencing much more than that. We're, we're addressing the man and his legacy and yeah. Um, I have to go against the grain somewhat in that I have brought some of my own monsters, my own gods into it, my own uh, grimoires into it and for me that's the other reason I wanted to play in the Lovecraft sandbox was to uh, to enlarge it just a little bit and, and put my own fingerprint on, on something. Yeah, but a bit of slime I left in the sandbox. But uh, you know, you mentioned the uh, the boundaries of the mythos. I don't think I've come anywhere near hitting boundaries of what can be done with the material but I think most writers, if if they're trying to do good work within this domain, very quickly come up against the limits of what they are comfortable with as as not um, not cliches, not the same old things that the people who do read this stuff have seen a million times over and over again. I you know I've, I've got Cthulhu in the title of the new novel, but. I wanted to handle him in the most subtle off-screen ways I could, and you know, as as much as possible, not just give you what you know you're going to
1: see. Right, because you it's it's who you're writing for. If you're if you're writing to establish your bona fides in a cult, I think there was a uh, one of Bob Price's uh, post Lovecraft anthologies that Fidogan and Brimmer did, his amazing cover with the and again, Wilson uh, image, which had. Yeah, the icon of uh, of HBL as the, as this Moai idol on at the top of this at the top of this, uh, this And There was a line of hooded accolades, each one holding up their offering. It's just a manuscript that says my HBL story. And if you're if you're just making an offering to leave the temple to establish that you're that, that that you're part of the circle, a lot of times yeah, those are the ones that, that most often are wrote, because they're it, it's just a dialogue of the text. Uh, a lot of the people that, 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 that I didn't really move things forward, the ones that are able to incorporate to a, to a, a greater extent uh, individual real fear. I mean, Laird Barron's stuff isn't, doesn't follow a lot of the, the, the tropes that Lovecraftian uh, fiction uh, does, but it feels as mythos as anything else because it, it captures that sense of the, the inimical nature of, of nature itself, that, that sense of being out there in the world. and
2: the of all of your all of your conveniences. Well for the the subtle approach, um, um well you know I actually have I actually have a story that is reprinted in one of those Bob Price anthologies and it's actually it's an outright sequel to The Whisper in Darkness. But it was published in Interzone, British science fiction magazine. Uh you know, obviously mostly for an audience of people who are not gonna know what this is and so it had to work without you even knowing without you even knowing there is a Whisper in Darkness. And um i think the thing if you actually are ready for the in-group audience the, the initiates be as subtle as you like Don't get it uh you know don't write like it's for beginners is, uh, well i think actually frankly, i think the derelict most of the derelict stuff is just a wrong approach anyway you know it, battling on pages of lore uh doesn't scare you it kind of puts you to sleep after work. what it actually does um, is the, the way to, to determine failure in the cthulhu mythos story is, is this a horror story? Am I moved to fear? What emotion do I fear? If, if this really makes you smile and re- reflect nostalgically on other things you've read, that's not a horror story. That's comfort food. Basically, right. that's comfort. basically you don't want to, you know, I'm not writing to fill that's comfort food. You want it to actually work as a horror story, and you want to even work for that initiated. And of course, then there's this extra exactly something for the initiator, but basically, be as subtle as you want, because they will get it. Right,
1: when I wrote my first, my first two books, uh, Dawn of Dust*, I was trying to take the model, of sort of, that *The Rear Tails* used of using conventional pulp tropes and mixing them and playing the, your expectations off against each other. Because while well, each one's a genre of surprise, of course, I mean, there are there, there's a, a, a time-honored and a cherished set of conventions with each one. But when you put them against each other, that you, you know, you have an action hero who finds itself in a cosmic horror situation, you're, you're going to get some unexpectedly uh, unexpected insights. Uh, I, I try to take like, the, the tropes that were the, the genres that were the biggest in paperback the inaccessible paperback fiction the conspiracy thriller, the police procedural, the government thing, the medical, environmental, you know, world's time to an end type of thing. And we very, very subtly, through the first book, that there was something else going on there, that there was a hidden truth that everybody was either uh, ignorant of or, or, driven, or, or, or driven to distraction by. And then by the end of the first book, when it would have been, okay, the big of government conspiracy is happening and this guy has to this one man has to spoil it, you find out it's not my kind of story at all. And then it appears into a, a Lovecraftian uh, science fiction science fiction epic. And I did that I mean, my, the guy who published it really wanted to say, why don't we put you know is able to get, get to a table of the Mintho somewhere? Because then the audience that there's a guaranteed audience that like, will come in and check it out. I was hoping to trick people that had aren't familiar with it. And, and make a theory for them, and then have them read this. Okay, if this if this came out of Lovecraft, then maybe
2: I should go back in I'm trying to grow their own. But you know, for for marketing purposes, Cthulhu is the smile button of our time, <laughs> and uh, basically anything would work. With, that's why all these anthologies. I mean, nobody says Tales of the Narlathor type methods. All of these anthologies manage to work the word Cthulhu into the title because it sells more as a the brand name. You know, like Joshi's uh, Black Wings anthologies become in paperback. Black Wings of Cthulhu. Because we'll sell more copies that way.
1: And, and as yeah, I, I was just at Comic Con last month, and uh, of course, going to Comic Con year in and year out uh, and watching as the, the film and TV and, and toy industries grow, well, it, it's kind of like watching a snake digested at dinner. But as the economy's gotten worse, people are more uncertain. You we were seeing. More buying than ever, but it was very desperate and buying. It was it was uh, hewing to brands. People weren't looking at new stuff. People were, were wanted to buy uh, alien action figures, Star Wars toys, uh, DC and Marvel T-shirts uh, and uh, icons and, and, and comfort fetish items. And it was fascinating to see how all of these items are corporate controlled from the top down. Except for Cthulhu deals, the only open source icon that. I mean,
2: The man that kind of of background guy. Yeah, you you know, if anybody tries to trademark, I know that actually, uh, well actually, the late Robert Weidenberg wrote to me, uh, and he asked me to find some passages in Lovecraft's letters where Lovecraft clearly gave permission, and the the reason was that apparently some insane lawyer for the people who had taken over Arkham thought they could trademark all this stuff. Well, I had a one-word answer. It's eBay. Go on to eBay, type in the word Cthulhu, and you get 9,000 products. Everything from breath mints to bobbleheads to t-shirts. Clearly, the Shawgraph is out of the bag, as we say, you know, this is not, this is clearly public domain. And uh, Lovecraft actually did uh, give, he gave permission. You, where you find those passages in his letters are usually in selected letters five, where he's writing to some teenage fan in 1936 and explaining it all. You know, he didn't have to tell Robert Howard you know, or somebody, yeah, sure, you can use my stuff, they just did that. But to the younger, new, to the people who are the newcomers toward the end of Lovecraft's career, he writes several times and explains quite explicitly, well, I like how my people use, share this background, and, and so on. And, and, but anyway, the, the basic it's so clearly escaped. I mean, they there really are Cthulhu breath mints now. <laughs> I, I have a ton of them. I haven't dared open it. <laughs> but anyway, and it doesn't say trademark anything. You just can't. So it, that, that, of course, is why, it, well I should a historical pointer. As soon as August Derel August Daryl claimed to own Lovecraft Philo Everything, and he sort of bullied people into submission. As soon as he died in nineteen seventy one, it exploded. So the, the whole modern mythos era is the post derelic era, because it's suddenly everybody was doing it. You didn't have to get permission. I mean he even suppressed a couple of mythos stories in the forties that were unauthorized, right? See all
0: Thompson. Thompson, yeah. I've been talking about those, the Will of Claude Ashore oh, and the Spawn of <coughs> the They're They're not bad. They're not great, they're not bad. Um, it's, uh, the Will of Ashore is sort of this melding of the Shadow Runsmith with uh on the, and the It's actually kind of interestingly done. I um, can't remember what the Spawn of the Great is about.
2: but Sounds like Dagon with a name like that. Probably. Uh, um,
0: it's
2: Right. Yeah, they're,
0: not, they're not great, they're not bad. Derelict suppresses him and tells him to move on. See, Hal Thompson goes on to write westerns and uh, wilderness adventure stories. Those are actually pretty good if you can find them. Um, sort of like Luke and more stuff. Um, I would have liked to have seen where he would have
2: gone as a writer with the mythos. Yeah, you know, one wonders why Derelict didn't try to co opt him. Right. But Derelict actually just. He used to tell people he owns the copyright, on so all this livestock and Maryland. And so the modern mythos... The modern mythos needed Derelict to die, sorry. But well, it's true. Well, it, it, it
1: Derelict it, imposed, imposed a uh, 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 uh Framework on it by introducing the Elder Gods, and a and, and family tree, and a lot of other things that... Uh,
2: unintentionally made it feel very commonplace yeah, and voice. that's what, that was, The other yeah the other rule for, for would be mythos writers is avoid the Thing heresy. And the Thing heresy is basically a dualistic cosmic cosmos in which there are such things as good and evil. And there are in fact good gods who will help mankind against the bad gods. And the uh, this he based it all on the on the phony black magic quote. On old editions of Lovecraft you will find um, they quote this passage where Lovecraft says, All my stories are based on the lore that they, you know, you know the quote I'm talking about? Yes. Um, well, the, fa- the wrong version of it says that based on the lore that these, that these beings were expelled and. See, anyway, that is apparently, well, they, they didn't, the scholarship didn't track this down until the 80s, and there was an article about it in Crypto C- Cthulhu. It seems that Daryl was misremembering what somebody else misremembered. He didn't actually ha- he couldn't produce the letter to, where Lovecraft said this. And in fact, I think Clark Asher Smith at the time—that doesn't sound like Lovecraft. There's basically there's no moral order in the uh, Lovecraft universe. There's no good and evil. Uh, there are no comforting gods coming galloping to the rescue or shambling to the rescue. Um, you just—and—and and to have that really diminishes it because the, the whole horror of Lovecraft is all about you know the meaningless cosmos and the small place of mankind in it. And um, when when L- when Gareth tries to tell you, it's sort of vaguely like the Christian myth as well. No, it's not. And so basically, the the first the, the first way to get rid of the baggage is I think it's to get rid of get rid of the writings of August Herlin, while appreciating his editorial ability. Yeah, there was an, a, an all, um, him.
3: there was an interesting article in New Statesman magazine in 2014 when Les Klinger's uh, Book uh, the uh, annotated Lovecraft came out, and truly uh, worth looking up uh, by John Gray. He talks about uh, how Lovecraft had, had invented an anti-mythology, and even said himself that uh, you know mythology is something that shields the human mind from reality, and uh, his mythology functions in the opposite way. Uh, you know, it's it's what blasts the mind apart, right? Shatters. The world view, um, and Lovecraft also had things to say about how mythology is is really not effective in creating horror. Because uh, in, in one of his uh, essays, he says that horror should be original, and the use of common myths and legends is a weakening influence. Um, you know, if we if we think that the religious paraphernalia that banishes the vampire is going to do us any good against the Lovecraftian pantheon, you know, we're in deep shit. So, uh, I, you know, I think, I think part of what makes the mythology so rich for us, you know, ironically it has become a mythology, ironically we are, uh, you know, using a system uh, of, of myth in a way uh, to, to create this work, but where we, I think, have an advantage over the vampire writer and, and the zombie writer is that we also inherit all of that philosophical underpinning. And so I've, I've got characters who may believe in good and evil, but they're confronting evidence of chaos and, and blind forces in the universe that may be more intelligent than them, um, you know, as, as Lovecraft did. And so, to me, that's what's richest about exploring character in the Lovecraft universe: that uh, that they've got to reconcile this. You know, does does humanism have have any any meaning? Does uh, does empathy, does compassion, have any value in in this vast and un- uncaring and possibly malicious uh, cosmology that, that they have to face. Is that something that uh that you guys uh feel is, is an important part of Absolutely. of a mythos tale that, that uh, we not just deal with the 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 trope you know the trappings of it all but um but to confront those questions. Yeah I think the,
2: the question is um well if we understand the rules, I mean, the problem with the derelict mythos is you understand the rules. If you understand how the universe works and how the gods work, it's considerably less scary. The whole horror of Lovecraft is the discovery that we don't understand the rules. Right.
0: So um, Doug talked about that, and he mentioned earlier about you know there's no there's no god coming to save you, uh, to save mankind. I if you read my work, you know that I take it one step further. There's no shambling gods coming to see the deep ones, the elder things, the my go. One problem one thing that I think people get wrong a lot is to think that it's humans versus everything else and everything else will line up together. I would really like to play with the idea that there are still factions (coughs) within the Mythos monsters and some days the deep ones are gonna go up against the weighted and it's not gonna be pretty because Let's face it, the Deep Ones, for all their, their, their natural ability, they're still terrestrial creatures. They live in a terrestrial world. If thought comes back and changes the laws of the universe and water now burns, they're screwed. So if they have a vested interest in keeping the world the way it is, just not with humans in it, they're not happy with everything else going on. They shouldn't be happy with everything else going on. That's kind of an interesting point of view for me to play with that creates a whole new set of
2: conflict. I think, uh, humans, basically, humans in the Lovecraft universe might be described as being like pigeons in a parade. You know, you're a pigeon working his way through the parade, you have no idea what the parade is about, but it's really trying not to get trampled. And, um, yeah, so there's this vast cosmic parade going on, and we're really not part of it. And um, we even wonder if some of the great old ones even perceive our existence. Or maybe they just exist on such fast time scales that we're like mayflies even. they don't even know we're here.
1: That's, and that's yeah. The, 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 it's an excellent analogy for the one of the things that to me frustrates or diminishes the mythos is when it when it is a, a humanist centered uh, centered situation because then effectively you have, a, you have a story about a parade where the pigeons are able to uh, able to stop and redirect the parade by moving on it. We uh, <laughs> look at things like 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 Ryan Lumley very much took the, uh, the 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 gospel of derleth and ran with it uh, to the point where he had I mean uh, recurring characters, you know, uh, uh, De Marine and and Titus Crow, and they would they would set out as, uh you know swords with and, and inevitably defeat the beings of the CCD, you know, the Cthulhu cycle beings. It, it, like it, it sounds like a like a rogue British <laughs> Demistry Association. It goes to that question of do, you know, uh, do human beings uh, uh, you know, or, or hero or, or grow up beings move from one hero to another, beating ch- one challenge after another, or do, do events you know, throw up the person that's going to respond to it, who, if they survive the situation, the one situation, they're going to spend the rest of their lives shaking in the dark, sorry that they ever, that they ever got out of bed. And that uh, speaks to a lot of philosophy, and I, and, I, and I have a great amount of respect for heroic fantasy, but I wonder what draws some people to write heroic fantasies in this universe because it's it, it, it seems like a blithe uh, rejection, just a refusal to acknowledge uh, the
2: the nature of the universe. It's well, it's going to have to end on a very very dark note. I mean, I think I the silliest example of this sort of stuff is is at the end of the Trail of Cthulhu. We don't want up we meet up on the Cthulhu permanently, but you know, dropping a nuclear bomb, a atomic bomb on on uh, you know really uh, getting you know, that that's rather silly. Kind of diminishes Cthulhu. I expect he'd vanish into another dimension if he did that anyway.
1: Uh. One of my yeah, one of my favorite bad mythos books was Robert Block's Strange Yawns. Like uh, his little of bad of that. Yes, but it's kind of a
2: joke with us. Oh yeah, no, it,
1: it is, and it was, and, and the wonderful joke about it is, is that it goes through char- it goes through characters like there's a socks. And so each time you have a you know, have a character, third characters survive, you know, a, a couple of chapters. And then somebody has to come along to the to the nephew of the last poor bastard uh, who had the, the misfortune of being the protagonist and explain to him all over again what's going on. And, and so it's almost kind of a revisiting joke. okay yes, 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 so it's all about the same budget though, and we've got it down to a like handy bullet point sheet, here you go, the luck. And yeah, it's it's funny. It's illuminating what's what what doesn't what doesn't work. Uh,
2: but
1: but that in turn inspired me. Yeah, I want to write just like Strange you know, Heroes. See, you
2: showed me you can do it. Well, I'm in the whole anthology. Well, the, the idea of uh, I did an anthology called Cthulhu's Reign, which is what takes place after Cthulhu comes back. You know, that, that that was an area that nobody ever went to. You know, Cthulhu's coming. What happens at the day after?
1: Well, it was, yeah. So that, that was something. That was one of the few places where people did not seem to recognize. Yeah, if I go there, it will probably it will
2: yeah. Diminish. The limit. The limit of editing that anthology, that of course, is that I can't have all the stories edited and then they died hideously.
3: Uh, Strange, which, eons does does raise the uh, the point though that whenever a new writer approaches the Cthulhu Mythos, there, there is not only the question of how much of Lovecraft's original writing do I reference and, and do I include in in my uh, you know paradigm but uh everything that came after and and even there there are a lot of some of them very good stories that will incorporate Lovecraft as he, he exists in our world like people start to figure out that oh this ties into this thing that science fiction writer from the 30s did um you know those aren't typically my favorite but some have, some have been done well um so so it's just such an enormous body of work to sort of set your rules for, you know, and does, did Lovecraft live in, in my universe, did, uh, you know, is, which which of the, is the Derleth material valid in my universe? Um, you know, one thing that I had fun with was the fact that a lot of people are unfamiliar with... H.P. Lovecraft's fiction who are nonetheless familiar with the Necronomicon and have, have bumped into the, you know, the mall Satanist with uh, their copy of, of the Simon Necronomicon. Um, so uh, you know, again, ironically, you've got this guy who was an atheist and, and who disavowed even the you know, palliative of mythology uh, who has become integrated into a kind of minor religion that some people actually practice. Uh, so so where I was trying to do a series of thrillers, again, you know, crazy because this stuff was very effective as short fiction, I thought, oh, I'll well, give myself a challenge and this will either be a spectacular fuck-up or, you know, I'll do something interesting. Um, in, you know, in the thriller structure where people do have to often overcome these forces, um, I didn't want the good versus evil but uh, I went back to that Simon Necronomicon, where the uh, you know he says banishings are ineffective against these forces. None of the traditional banishings of ceremonial magic will work, um, but but solar invocations uh, you know may. So I thought, okay, light and dark are, are cosmic forces that I can feel good about uh, having some efficacy without without having to bring in
2: God. Well, I'm reminded of it actually of the one one genuinely prophetic thing I ever did in the mythos, I ever did in, in the Mythos, which is in nineteen seventy eight I published a story called The Last Horror Out of Arkham, which was a joke. And it was all about it's in fantasy tales, uh, from way back when. And it was all about what happens when the old ones win and to so, to get it all over with. The idea was that this is intended to be a mercy killing actually. And and the, the part of it had to do with the very elaborate method of mass producing Necronomicans. Because you've always wondered why, despite its alleged lar- rarity, this book keeps turning up. And um, Anyway, one character finally says to one another, well, wouldn't it be a lot simpler just to publish it in paperback? And um, then the other guy says, no, don't be silly. People would think Lynn Carter wrote it. Lynn was very, because you know, he hadn't yet. He realized that Lynn actually did write a version uh, that was published as a specialist of Crypt of Uh But um, uh, basically, I guess I predicted a mass market paperback never my time before it happened. Nice. And uh, then we all went back.
1: Yeah. I think I'm Klein put that into uh, uh, Black Man with a Horn at, at one point. He said, yeah, if, if, if Lovecraft,
0: if an economicon was a real book, yeah, it would be out. Well, there's there's what John Brown does, the, the pronouncing effect, mm-hmm. which talks about how you actually say those words. Oh, yeah. And everyone gets it wrong until somebody gets it right. Um, and then Larry Gibbon, the last economicon, which I don't think has ever been reprinted. I, I found it online and then it disappeared. Uh, I one
2: been, you know, very, It's a great short story about the paperback version of and everything. The, paper, the, the, the pronounced, in fact, is in, yeah. I published that story. Yes, I, know. I did. Um, it's in Weird Tales. Yes. Um, and, um, I just want to kind of, bot. It's okay. I'm going mad. know how that is. Uh, but oh i don't know what to talk about will murray did a story recently which basically what happens somebody digitalizes an economic kind of goes viral yes yes it's in it's in the, the misticatonic library and i can remember as it, technology advances this this concept keeps going Sprague to camp had a poem called xeroxing the Necronomicon. this considering what would happen to study you've got to lose a photocopier but uh, yeah basically if the Necronomicon existed now it would be online and it would probably be sort of metastasizing and rewriting itself and thinking over the internet.
0: If you remember tr- uh, the Adder by French Chip you know, Oh
2: yeah.
0: Necronomicon uh, kind of is given to a bookseller and he's told to keep it safe. So he pulls a pile and he hides it in plain sight. He puts it into a bin of like cheap paperbacks. And the Necronomicon kind of corrupts the language in the paperbacks, but changes the language of all copies of
2: those books around the world. Yeah, so it's basically like sucking the poetry out of Milton. It was put next to a copy of Paradise Lost. But Fred, yeah, um, the other, uh, Fred Chapel also did a wonderful story called Weird Tales. Yes. Which, uh, I, he, he, well he said that I was the only one who noticed it, but that was probably the first serious story anybody wrote which took place after The Old Ones went if you read the last couple lines of that very carefully, you realize this is taking place after the Return of the Old God. You know, I think it, it was something about, I can't, you know, under whose uh, bondage we who now suffer or something. Yeah, for the last still line still something like that. Uh, that,
1: that. That is another one that, uh, I, I wrote a story for a recent book, uh, Return of the Ones, uh, which uh, Dark Phoenix Press put out. It was a, a great collection of stories uh, uh, on, you know, where, where the, uh, the, the Great Red Day is imminent, and uh, the day of and then after, and I wrote a story that's kind of trying to partake equally of all three because it, it just, I, I feel like it's such a human conception that, uh, because humans have the the capacity to telescope history to collapse things down, to think that, Yeah, that this would be a day that would be like destroy all monsters when just every every uh, Godforsaken, uh, crypt opens up all over the earth and these monsters all come out and uh, and and shamble. And I wrote a story that was set in Norman, Oklahoma. And uh, at the beginning, this guy was watching the news. He's sitting there and he's next to one of those posters that's up in an employment, you know an employment agency that says you know if you're on the lead dog, the scenery never changes. Uh, and and it's pointing out this thing has happened four seven years ago. And uh, there are news stories like about how the, the new premier of China has come from Tibet. And everybody in Shanghai have has removed their eyes. And uh, there's the, the, you know, the, the floating boat city in the middle of the South Pacific that's now approached like 10,000 boats. They have their own official navy and uh, they're now doing radio broadcasting. So this thing, these things are happen, but not on a time frame where it's recognizable to us. It's like when, the, 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 I mean, with the sole exception of maybe the, the asteroid that hit the dinosaurs these changes are usually not observable, and they very quickly come to seem normal, and that's both uh, a human strength, but also uh, a, a weakness or, a, I think, a character flaw, is that if you turn up the, turn up the temperature slowly enough, the frog seems to a really nice hot tub, it doesn't realize it's important. That's out So, yeah, I'll just ask one more question.
0: Very early in, early in my career, it was only eight years ago, uh, <laughs> I, I wrote a story called purity Monsters about a deep one that goes uh, in search of Cthulhu to release him, uh, and it's set in modern times So he has to make it as going out as a research vessel, he dies down there, he's going to release Cthulhu. and he opens up the chamber, he's gone. He's been gone for 80 years. You know, Johan's narrative. Yeah, he came out. He got split by the ship. He, he put himself back together, and he was like, "Okay, I'm gonna. I've been buried for millennia. It's time to go home. But This is a really bad hangover." <laughs> um, but, it, but from our point of view, that's great, right? But from the deep one's point of view, that shatters his faith. Mm-hmm. He built up his life, in all his religion, around that that God that God is going to break up and wipe the, the And he was right, Cthulhu doesn't give a shit, he just left.
2: I okay. leave aside you yeah, I think, back soon. Yeah. But the, the, where, where
0: I'm going with this is that, this is supposed to be one little story, but that concept that Cthulhu has left is now, like, in my fourth iteration because I think it's a very powerful thing to go back and look at how that would, be. Influence people like Wilcox in other cultures and half-human hybrids. What is it? What do you do when you are told that your God has abandoned you? To me, that's cool.
4: Mm-hmm. Yeah, a yeah. cool yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. idea. That, 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 that brings me around something I hadn't really thought about before.
1: But one of the suffocating tropes that I thought had I him very early on the notion that, that monster that actually has a tail on this on that fishing smack is necessarily Right. We only have a secondhand you know uh, the, a fisherman's tail uh, known throughout the world for its uh, uh, for its verifiability and veracity. yes I have always felt that after that after that incredible buildup of this these fragmentary sources coming together to build up a, 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 an amalgam of this component picture of this thing is too large to fit into one story that that thing that stumbles out of, the, uh, out, of the, out of the uh out of the out of the out of its crypt eats a few sailors and then gets impaled on a on a, on a ship and then disintegrates. i find of heard believe that 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 is completely I mean,
2: that- it was really just hanging out basically yeah. yeah you know it, it's, well maybe the event the thing is think of the of the way the prison with the pharaohs works and you realize that these enormous monsters are just the digits of one paw. exactly so basically maybe it's, it's just a small part of him, and he he has the ability to send out Incorporated but still operational pieces of himself, and so effectively, that's a single detached pseudopod it's a skin cell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I think.
1: Uh, time wise, we got off uh, 15 plus minutes, so we love to turn out some questions. You back to um uh,
4: yeah I've always been kind of interested in where do these tropes come from? What's their scene And it's like what I think of is it, Lovecraft had a sense of for 15 bucks, you know, or something. They're not really making a lot of money. There's no internet. So they kind of incorporate each other's stuff as sort of an in-joke. Yes. So when they're reading these stories, they say, oh yeah, that Carbash Tony, he's a funny guy. I'll put some of his stuff in there too. Mm-hmm. And then years later, people read this stuff and they say, oh, that's the way a met those story is supposed to go. So I'm gonna add my stuff onto it rather than, than yeah. it took a long time for people to actually look at that and say that, oh, that isn't really what they meant. That's just them kind of having fun with it. Because no one else is reading it. They're reading it to each other.
2: Well, actually, Joshi, if I see Joshi were here, he would probably go into a long discourse at this point about how Lovecraft may have not actually known what a that story was, and that's really more of invention mentioned it. But what Lovecraft was trying to do was encourage his, <laughs> his friends to to, to drop all these references so that it would just sound like a common body of lore. Like, as if it was something that all these writers are in on. So it wasn't systematized, and, and, and I don't think, uh, oh, he referred to it as Yaj Sothari at one point, and he he said that he um, he regarded this as his more immature work. But um, Lovecraft, I probably took it a lot less seriously about having rules than, than anybody else did. The only other thing I would correct, by the way, is I would point out that actually all these guys are paid extremely well. Because uh, even the most wretched cults paid the equivalent of about 30 cents a word in today's money. You know, in, a, in an era in which if you had a job, you were lucky to make $15 a week, you sell a 3,000-word story for um, 30 bucks. That's just two, a two-week two salary. Um, you know, so basically, if, if they didn't dismiss it because of, because of the money. The Weird Tales is actually paid modestly well by the standards for the Platinum. Just multiply all the figures by at least 10. Okay.
1: These developments, so I try to I try to keep a lot of my stuff on the cusp of what we know and what we think we hope to know. Uh, but yeah, I, I write a lot of period period stories. Wherever the setting wherever the mindset is going to give you a unique spin. I've written an ancient Roman uh, story where the uh, the main character is, the, is based on the, the real the real life guy who invented uh, fire departments. And the way that this, this guy, who's a, a retired general, uh, would run his fire department is if your, your warehouse is on fire, he'll come over and he'll offer you a penny pennies on the dollar for the, uh, for the building. And if you, if you accept his payment, then he and his people will go save the building. But it's now theirs. And as the fire goes down, he just keeps taking talents out of his hand until he's like, okay, I'll give you five bucks for whatever's left. And, uh, uh, and, and, and so it's because he seemed like a model for probably being the least impressible person, the person who had the least reaction to the computer he immediately started to say, Okay, how impressive is my speed a little? But doing that as, a, as a, an experiment to see how far you can get to the field from the normal uh, uh, the Lovecraftian investigator who's, who's just a bundle of nerves. Uh, anyone else? So? No, I said
0: earlier. One, I
1: guess one guy made a degree. Yeah, it's funny that you said maybe like do you think
5: that to the
1: Yes, yes, and I think because there is that, uh, there is that, uh, for his own purposes, and so using the—I wrote a story—actually, this is what a big fat hack I am. I, uh, I, I wrote a Halloween story for a Halloween anthology uh, last year, and I wrote it about uh, about a Hell House, you know, one of those, one of those Christian things where they try to scare people, the way the world really is. And uh, uh, this guy unknowingly enters into a pact where his, his, his Hell House people walk into the room, and they don't just Walk through and see a really terrible scene of an an abortion, of an abortion clinic, or babysitters, hippie babysitters, microwaving the baby. Uh, They actually walk into that situation and they're trapped for a lifetime inside this very, very slanted, false universe. And then when they stumble out, their hair is gray and they've gone through, you know, 15 horrible abortions. They live inside a chip track essentially, and it's set up. It was was a very diabolical story, but uh, the, the. uh, the Halloween, the sort of sketch kind of a field, a uh, far field, we wanted jack-o'-lanterns and pumpkins, we wanted to on Halloween comfort food. And then, I, I, so I, took my ball and I went home, and I hadn't even gotten home yet, when some guy contacted me, I'm putting together an anthology of, yeah, those Halloween stories! Maybe five minutes. And uh, uh, in playing, I, I think using him as a, it shouldn't just be Mephistopheles, but writing and understanding, yeah, people, people are looking for this to be more uh, of a Mephistophelian character, at a more relatable character, and playing off those expectations that, like, yeah, it, it's, it's not really going to be a deal with it at all. These interactions with you, you're only kidding yourself
2: that he's more human because he has a face, but it's only one of a thousand faces. But he—he—he, he, he, his, his character, your characters can interact. It's kind of hard to chat with Philip, uh, or much even worse with the Um uh, Keith Taylor did a very wonderful—you uh, you know how Lovecraft makes a mention about how Agatha appeared as a man in ancient Egypt. Well, Keith Taylor specializes in writing stories about ancient Egypt, so he wrote that one. And um, and well, they they sort of temporarily thwarted him, but they realized that. Um, well, basically they hope that by the time the guys who were responsible hope that by the time uh no i thought that came back they'd all be dead you know it was it was one of his we remember from weird tales it was a, a series of stories about camos the priest of anubis that keith taylor did. well he wrote one of those about the and and, and the, the the anecdote that uh that lovecraft alluded to with it never wrote up.
3: I, I do love that idea of Nyarlathotep as the psychopomp or the, uh, you know, the messenger that we find analogs of in other myths, and, and that similarity to the devil that you can find him in many cultures and many masks, and uh, that, you know, beyond any particular religion, there will be some some manifestation. It's so, very compelling for that reason. So you, I was
0: just talking about this the other day on the Legends of Tabletop uh, podcast, if you... For my universe, the with those are the results of singularity events, where you know, they've made some technological advance and they've collapsed not to be from individuals into whatever. Um, for Nyreleth attempt, like I was asking, How does Nyreleth work in the universe? And Nyreleth attempt is a future echo of what mankind will be when we go through our singularity event. This is why he's often constantly defeated, because he really has, he doesn't need to win. We will really be him. And he will be us. And that's why we're able to talk with him, we're able to understand him. He's able to bargain with us, but we still don't understand how much yeah, sure going to on. The deals are not yeah. his soul. Right. Soul, soul it, please. It, it, soul is nothing. What he's putting in motion is his own creation.
3: That's really cool that that's almost a philip k dickian uh, yes. concept that we are you know that, that god doesn't exist at the beginning of the universe but at the end of it that we are evolving into it ourselves yes. i, I love that
1: idea that's a neat way of putting uh, uh playing the agency and the inevitability off against each other it's one of the one of the common and, and just junk tropes in a lot of a lot of minutes is, is hero fiction. I'll, I'll get some blame for this. Is that you're usually trying to thwart a sacrifice? They're going to open the portal, and and stuff's going to come through, and, uh, and and so maybe you thwarted it, and maybe you stopped it for today. But that's that's not the question. The sacrifice. It, it's a big question whether the God is any more cognizant or desirous of the sacrifice than a marathon runner is when you hold out a big, a big cup of electrolytes, swashes it over his face, and he keeps running. Uh, but uh, the.
2: I like that idea of it being, of it being inevitable and self-created. Yeah. Oh man, I'm affording the sacrifice. I've been reminded. Well, the strangest one I ever saw was an issue of Tales of the Leather Nun. Anybody remember? Oh, that? Oh God, yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. oh, the, oh, the, the, oh, the oh, one oh. about Bill Hazard's grand. no, it's about the Leather Nun's grandmother. And Bill. We probably can't describe it. It's a little too unspeakable. But we can find it. Uh, There's a Lovecraftian issue of Tales of the Leather Nun. It was an underground comic the golden age of underground comics.
0: Um, by Jack
4: Jackson?
2: One of those guys. Yeah. But anyway, and it's um, it's all about stopping an invasion of into our cosmos by uh, methods we will remain unmentioned. We've got time for one or two more questions. All right. Oh, well, I'll just start to your yeah. yeah. No? I think he really did. Uh, I don't think he knew about the big bang. He, he, he followed Einstein. He well, basically what, what was really profoundly remember he was a great student of astronomy. And um, what what is important about Hubble basically Lovecraft was living in a time in which the universe suddenly got a million times larger and older and older. He used, they used to believe that the swirly things you saw from the sky was just you know They were gas. That's why they occasionally they still refer to galaxies, as, but but in Hubble was the one who understood, understood that those swirly things are in fact great masses of uh, stars. They are other galaxies as we now know them, and um, there's more than one galaxy in the universe. And the universe goes on forever. So basically, it helped. This helped, I think, influence Lovecraft's uh, philosophical outlook considerably. The the idea that you know God and the universe would be focused on us, considering how big the universe is, and then the universe has just expanded exponentially that one little that the god would in one little speck over there uh, that, that, that anything on that one little speck over there could possibly be the center of anything more particularly important so yeah the, the hubble expansion of the universe is, was tremendously important to lovecraft's uh, outlook wow we're going to burst into songs okay i've got a hymnalist <laughs> Time. Ah, we, we can we can sing a, a hymn to tap. Uh We got one. Dare uh, we? No. No. <laughs> All right, well, that's for tomorrow. We have not been drink drinking enough. A Your silence counts as a sin. Yeah. Uh, well, To Yeah. rock tune of ages. Basically, it's it. it's basically well. Anyway, we could do that. This is this is the threat you face. Um, it is basically Lovecraft's. Uh, what this actually is is Lovecraft's sonnet in our lathotep rewritten rewritten to the tune of Rock of Ages. Mm-hmm. Um, we are fully capable of this, but Three, but it's two, two, one, one,
5: crawling. Send us
2: What happened next is we start reciting Limerick. I'd like to thank you all folks for uh, showing up and
1: kindly uh, sharing your thoughts and good feelings. I want to wish you the very best, most prosperous and disturbing of the uh, rest of the weekends. And i see you all soon. I'm sure we're all on the dealer floor or uh, in your room when you're when not you're there. <laughs> yeah.
2: uh, and we the prayer breakfast in this tomorrow.